Welcome to 2020, and welcome to the second episode of the Shape of My Memory Show. I'll be your host. My name is Jerry. I hope you all had a great New Year and a wonderful Christmas. We all have a history, beginning from the instant we were conceived throughout our childhood while we were being nurtured and taught by our parents right up through this very moment in time, we have been collecting memories. And we will continue to build that data bank of our personal being right up until we take our last breath. And that treasure chest of memories are some of the most valuable and important possessions of our lives. At least they are for me, second only to my wife and daughters. We start building our memories as soon as we start thinking. And I believe we start thinking by the time we draw our first breath. Maybe even sooner. Many people, including myself, believe that life begins at conception rather than at birth. And if we subscribe to that theory, then it is possible that thinking could commence at that time also. But to my reckoning, our brains would need to be at least partially, if not completely developed, before the thought process can begin. And if I'm correct about that, then thinking likely starts sometime before birth while we are still enjoying the comfort of our mother's womb. To validate that assumption, I offer the substantial evidence that talking, reading, and singing or playing music for a baby during gestation has profound impact on the child's abilities after birth. To have such an influence on the unborn strongly suggests to me that cognitive thought begins and thus memories are formed well before birth. I have memories of very early childhood. Some are full and complete memories, but many more are just bits and pieces hanging out in the tucks and folds of my brain. I hope that some of those early bits and pieces will help me to build enough relics of my past to remind me of times gone by while bringing you a little enjoyment and maybe stir up a few memories of your own. And while I truly hope you do enjoy each and every item I share with you as much as I enjoy sharing them, they serve mostly for my own enjoyment and so that my wife, my daughters, and the rest of my family will have an idea of how I was shaped into the person I am. When my mom was a kid in Australia, she was pushed off a pier and almost drowned. And almost drowning was why, even though we lived three blocks from the beach, I didn't learn to swim while we lived in Imperial Beach. My sisters, being braver, or at least I think they were braver, maybe they were just more comfortable with not following the rules than I was, learned to swim way before we moved. I was near 15 before I started blatantly ignoring my parents' rules. I never did learn how to swim. Southern California beaches are very different today than they were in the 1950s. And by today, I mean January 3rd, 2021. Today, if we were not under lockdown in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, the beaches would be packed wall to wall with sunbathers, surfers, kite flyers, and any number of others trying to enjoy their place in the sun. And those packed beaches in most cases are clean, picture postcard perfect. But in the 1950s, it was a different story. A lot of the time, there were huge clumps of smelly, rotting seaweed washed up on the shoreline as far as you could see. And that seaweed was often covered in beach tar. Little did I know that this beach tar, as everyone called it, was actually crude oil spilled or dumped at sea by I don't know who. Big chunks of driftwood and other debris discarded overboard from ocean-going ships and commercial fishing boats that called San Diego home were abundant and all matter of junk littered the beaches. 
Now there are huge machines that drive along the beaches cleaning up such refuse. Not so back then. At that time, San Diego was home port to one of the world's largest commercial fishing fleets. When they weren't out on the open water fishing, they tied up two or three deep along the Embarcadero San Diego Bay, all the way south to the huge tuna processing plant and cannery along Harbor Drive, just south of downtown. I'm pretty sure it was a chicken of the sea plant, but I'm not positive on that. It was somewhere in the area of where the San Diego Convention Center is now, maybe a little further south. Right smack dab in the middle of it all, at the foot of Harbor Drive and Pacific Highway was the Coronado Ferry Landing. That's where the cars and passengers would load onto the ferry for the short trip across the bay to Coronado. It isn't that Coronado is such a huge community that it needed a ferry to transport its citizens home. The ferry, and later the Coronado Bridge, which took its place, carried Navy and civilian workers across to North Island Naval Air Station, which took up half or more of Coronado Island. Where the ferry landing was is now Seaport Village. That's an upscale tourist spot filled with shops and restaurants and home to the USS Midway. The Midway is a decommissioned Navy aircraft carrier turned into a museum. It is moored at the 11th Naval District Pier at the north end of Seaport Village and south of San Diego Cruise Ship Terminal. The cruise ship terminal began its life as a Navy supply warehouse and pier where the Navy would load, offload, and store cargo from ships to supply the huge naval presence in San Diego. Just north of the cruise ship terminal is the Embarcadero, which now is home to the San Diego Maritime Museum. That's where the Star of India, along with a steam engine ferry boat named the Berkeley, are now moored. When the fishing fleet was still there, the Star of India was tied up just south of the ferry landing and the Berkeley was being used as a floating gift shop in Sausalito, California. The Berkeley was built in 1898 and spent 60 years operating on San Francisco Bay. They brought her down the coast to become part of the museum in 1973. The Star of India is the world's oldest active sailing vessel. Active meaning she sails around San Diego Bay once every five or ten years. She is also the oldest iron-hulled merchant ship still afloat. She was launched as the fully rigged ship Euterpe at Ramsey Shipyard on the Isle of Man in 1863. As a Euterpe, she began her career as a cargo and spice hauler from Great Britain to India. In 1871, she began transporting immigrants to Australia and New Zealand and finished her career as a salmon hauler from Alaska to California from 1901 to 1923. In 1926, she was sold to the Zoological Society of San Diego and renamed Star of India, with plans to make her the centerpiece of an aquarium and park. Those plans were scrapped because of the Great Depression. She lay dormant in San Diego Bay until 1957 and became part of the San Diego Maritime Museum. She was subsequently restored to sailing condition over the next 19 years. Restoration was finished in 1976, just in time to sail around San Diego Bay in honor of the nation's bicentennial. The Nickel Snatcher is there along the Embarcadero also. That's a small fleet of passenger-only ferries that still carry the foot traffic to and from Coronado. The fare was a nickel when it was launched, hence the name Nickel Snatcher, and increased to 10 cents by the time I was 10 years old. I have no idea how much it is now. Along Harbor Drive next to the cannery was a sewer treatment plant where San Diego's waste was processed. I could never make up my mind which one, the cannery or the treatment plant, smelled the worst. 
Just a block to the east of the cannery along Main Street were the Union 76 Oil Company's gasoline storage tanks. That's where Union Oil's tanker trucks would load their gasoline to deliver to the various gas stations. The storage tanks were quite interesting. They were floating tanks that actually raised from and sank back into the ground depending on how full they were. They built them that way so there was never any airspace in the tanks. Airspace in the tanks increased the possibility of an explosion a million-fold. Those tanks were removed sometime in the mid to late 60s. I don't know when, but I just noticed they were gone one day. They were right around the area where Petco Park, home of the Padres, sits now. The cannery closed and the tuna fishing fleet relocated to other waters when the United States imposed stiffer tuna fishing regulations to stem the depletion of the tuna supply. Other countries don't seem to be as worried about protecting the world's food supply. The sewage plant was, or is, south from there along Harbor Drive, close to the 32nd Street Naval Station and National Steel and Shipbuilding Company, or NASCO as it is known. I don't know if NASCO is still there or not. It's a shipyard where the Exxon Valdez was repaired and renamed the Exxon Mediterranean after it ran aground in Prince William Sound, Alaska, and caused one of the largest oil spills in U.S. history. NASCO is now owned by General Dynamics, the parent company of Convair. Convair was the company my dad worked for that built the Atlas missile. Harbor Drive also ran north along the Embarcadero, around the north end of the San Diego Bay and curved its way between the U.S. Coast Guard Station on the left and Lindbergh Field on the right. Lindbergh Field is San Diego's airport. The main terminal opened in 1967. Before that, the terminal was located along Pacific Highway just north of Laurel Street. That terminal is now the Jim's Air commuter terminal. As the crow flies, we lived about a mile from Tijuana, Mexico. Before they built the apartment complex across the street from our house, we could see the Tijuana Bullring from our front porch. We could walk south on 1st Street, which ran along the beach, through the sloughs and Borderfield Naval Facility to the mouth of the Tijuana River. Borderfield was where the Navy housed its torpedo shop. My dad was stationed there when he and Mom bought the house. I guess it was located there because, being essentially a munition storage facility, it was a safer location than being too close to homes. I liked living close to Mexico. Once a month or so, Dad and I would drive down to Tijuana for a haircut. He liked having his haircut there because he said they did a better job than the barbers at the naval station, plus it was closer and cheaper. I suspect that it also had a lot to do with avoiding the brass. I liked it because the barbers would shave the back of my neck with a straight razor and wipe it down with a steam towel, which felt really good. They wouldn't do that for a kid up here. Plus, it was an adventure going down there. We would walk around the open-air stores and get all kinds of goodies like Mexican pastries, candy, tortas, and tamales. We would buy them from the little carts and hole-in-the-wall eateries along the sidewalks. I never believed the stories about them using dogs and cats and donkey meat, but if they were true, it was pretty good tasting donkey. At that time, there were hundreds of leather crafters and other craftsmen there that would make beautiful belts and purses and even saddles right there where you could watch them. The smell of the leather being worked was absolutely wonderful. 
and there were silversmiths making fine jewelry and belt buckles with turquoise stones. They used to have guitars and harmonicas and accordions hanging by the dozens in every shop. I got my first acoustic guitar there for 12 bucks. Those shops sold just about everything and anything you could imagine. One of the other smells I can remember was predominant on almost every corner where a sombrero-wearing cowboy leading a donkey would, for a few pesos, snap your kid's picture sitting on the donkey. Of course, they would drape him or her, your kid, that is, not the donkey, in a colorful wool poncho and slap a sombrero on their head for effect. The smell I'm talking about was the end result of the alfalfa they were being fed to keep them happily standing there for hours on end. My dad used to hate the ride home from Tijuana because the waiting line to cross the border was usually 30 minutes or more. I, on the other hand, loved it because the rows of cars waiting would be inundated with men, women, and children, all selling something of little actual value, but desirable nonetheless to those of us who craved a souvenir or other remembrance of the trip. I never understood why the customs officer at the border gate would open the hoods and trunks of some of the vehicles crossing until I saw a guy climb out from under the hood of the pickup truck in front of us when it was opened. It still amazes me what people will do to get into the U.S. I don't think my dad would have gone there very much if the lines coming home were as long as they are now. When dad hired in at Convair, he decided we could afford a new car. That's when he bought the brand new 58 Chevy Biscayne. And with the cost of gas going up and up, he decided that even though he was the only driver in the family that he needed a second, more economical car. He explained to me that he didn't want to wear out the new car with all those miles adding up. I think it was because his buddy had just purchased a brand new Volkswagen and Dad was a little envious. But since Volkswagens had just started to be imported, there were no used ones available and a new one was out of the question. So shortly after the search began for the beater, as Dad called it, I came home from school and there it was. Sitting on the front lawn because the Chevy took the entire single car driveway was this little yellow thing. It looked to be about four feet wide and maybe six or seven feet long. It looked like it only had three wheels, two in front and one in the rear. But I think the one in the rear was actually two wheels set very close together. And I couldn't see a door anywhere. There were two big headlights, one on each side, hanging off the sides, not on the front as they were on most cars. The front was almost flat from the bottom to the top with the windshield taking up the whole upper half. When you looked at it from the front with those huge headlights hanging off the sides, it reminded me of a cross between a grasshopper and a praying mantis. It was a BMW Isetta 300. I don't know what your model it was, but Dad only paid 75 bucks for it, which was in reality a pretty good chunk of change back then because it equaled about three of its house payments. And it actually did have a door, only one. On the passenger side of the front, just below the windshield, was a single door handle. When you turned it and pulled, the entire front of the car would swing open. The steering column was attached to the door and would pivot and swing up as the door opened. There was a single bench seat that stretched side to side and held two people. Three if two were kids. The gear shifter was a little lever that stuck out of the left wall next to the driver. It was powered by a BMW motorcycle engine and transmission and got about 40 miles to the gallon. And what fun! It drove like a bumper car. 
We all called that car the Bug, and Dad kept it for about three years, even through the move from Imperial Beach to Paradise Hills, which is about 20 miles closer to Dad's work. He had to park it and drive the Chevy to work for a couple of months because the clutch cable had broken and it took that long to locate a replacement and it turned out to be pretty pricey. So he sold it for $50, almost recouping his entire investment. I begged him to let me keep it and fix it up for when I got my license, but he said that would be foolish. Today, fully restored, they sell for upwards of 40 grand. Dad always told me that no matter what it was, if I didn't use it at least once a month, I should get rid of it. Maybe that's why I'm a borderline hoarder today. But the pain of losing the bug didn't last long. About a week after the new owner drove it away, Beater Number 2 made its appearance. It was a 1953 Pontiac four-door sedan with a hydromatic transmission and a straight-eight flathead motor. It blew oil and smoke like a destroyer escort laying down a smokescreen, and Dad knew it when he bought it. But he also knew that he and I could, and did, rebuild the entire motor for less than the cost of that clutch cable for the BMW. That car purred like the proverbial kitten after we finished the rebuild. He sold that car when he was laid off from Convair. He needed the money to feed us. He didn't set a price for the car when he put it up for sale. He just put a sign in the window that said, Make Offer. The guy that bought it offered almost five times what Dad had invested in it, including the rebuild. Dad just said, Okay, and smiled. We'll end this episode here. Thanks for listening. Hope you can join for Episode 3 on the first Sunday of February 2021. Till then, be blessed, stay safe, and I pray you will always have oil in your lamp.